The Reset Podcast is sponsored by Bose. With my new Bose QC35 headphones, nothing gets between me and my music. The noise canceling is world class. They're completely Bluetooth, so there's no wires. The sound is amazing. My producer and I love these so much that we use them to record every single show. For more information about Bose QC35 headphones and other Bose products, check out Bose.com. Hello! So, welcome to the third installment of The Reset. Um, I'm the co-founder of Digital Flash, Laura Mignot, your host and fearless leader. Uh, the goal of this podcast is always to get some of my good, smart friends who are doing interesting things in marketing, business, nonprofits, even somebody from government, talking about what's cool in their industry, what's not cool in their industry, and how it can be reset. We've got the amazing Felicia Stingone, uh, CMO of Grind here, uh, to chat about what's happening in the world of nonprofits. Felicia is awesome, friendly, and one of the fiercest women that I know. So she's going to have a lot of great things to say. So hi, Felicia. Hi, Laura. How are you? Good. I'm good. Uh, so the way that we always start the podcast is by having an icebreaker question. And it's a simple, easy one that always generates some crazy answers. So I, I'm sure you'll have one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Lady Felicia, yeah. what was your first job? Okay. So this is going to be a bit circuitous. My first job, like many of us, was in high school. Uh, so the minute I could get my working papers, I got a job. And it was in retail, you know, just because that's who hired young girls. So I got the retail bug. Very early on, I worked from a really amazing um, entrepreneurial woman who was great at merchandising and had left a big department store to cast off on her own and start um, in the business. And I loved it. And when I got to college, I also had to work. So I got a job at Ann Taylor, not realizing that I was about to get the four best years of training of my entire college career. So At Ann Taylor. At Ann Taylor. So sure, I did internships in advertising. I did internships at newspapers, at publishing houses. I did all the right things for a, you know, a person getting a degree in communications. But where I really learned my real-life skills was learning how to upsell and cross-sell and merchandise at Ann Taylor. And I'm so grateful to that company. Uh, as a result, I got out of school and got my first real job at Liz Claiborne, and it was a soul-sucking marketing job where I literally published one report every day. That was my whole job. And I quit after six months. And, you know, nobody did that back then. Like, nobody. Oh, my parents right. thought I was nuts. I had, like, literally a 400-square-foot apartment in the West Village that I shared with four women. Oh, my God. No, we How had many bathrooms? Cops. How many bathrooms? One. Sweet And Jesus. it was so small that when my friend's boyfriend had to use it, we all had to leave the apartment because his knees stuck out. He couldn't close the door. It was a Gottlieb apartment in the West Village. It was such a slum. What? But we How were in the middle legal? of everything. How was that even legal? Oh, I doubt it was legal. Okay. Who cared, though? Yeah. Anyway, so my point is... I know that right now there's a lot of talk about millennials leaving their job. I mean, and not to disparage millennials, but, you know, I think that certain people have always left jobs before their brains and souls were sucked out. <laughs> so it's, it's not, not it's something not, it's new. Not it's just a little bit more... It's not something new. I think it's just a little bit more... Ex it's more socially accepted. Well, it's more socially accepted, but it's also kind of different because you'd been working before you knew what you could take 
never thought about that. Yeah, I mean, I find a lot of this when they say, oh, well, they just want to go work for a startup and make a million bucks and be done with it. No. It's different. You were working before. You'd had jobs. You knew what was... A job I loved. Right. Well, you knew what you knew what you liked right. versus what you know what you didn't like. You knew what you were right. good at versus what you were bad at. But also, you knew what you could take internally. And when you knew that you couldn't do it anymore, you knew how to walk away. And I think that builds fortitude. Huh. And that is a lot something that you don't see a lot with a lot of millennials. So is this like a therapy session? We can be. <laughs> it, can, it can be. I think um, you're. I think you're so right. I think your perspective is so on. Um, what I what I did after that is um, I knew how to be a shop girl. I knew I was good at it. So I I went to Barney's and applied for a job. Got a job at Barney's, and boy, did that. Was that a different world? And it was so much fun. I met so many amazing people. And then eventually I got pulled into the marketing department because someone looked at my resume and saw that I had a marketing background. So here's the in- interesting thing. Um, that was the first time I joined a union. Wow. So when I worked at Barney's and Sales, I was in the union. My father was very proud. <laughs> and uh, I, I was on commission. I made more money probably than I made for like the next seven years. Um, when I went into the marketing department, uh, my salary went from about 30-something thousand with commission to 11,000. Can you imagine? Oh, my God. But, you know, I knew that, like, I had to start applying what I went to school for because my parents had paid, and I knew it really, I needed to you, figure you out. You needed it. to figure out where the hell you right. needed to be. I just had to do it. And it was um, it was a really, really great job. I worked with Simon Doonan and Pressman family and... I worked with um, Neil Kraft and all these amazing people, Fabian Barone, and I met some of my greatest friends, and it was amazing. It was great. Awesome. So it's interesting. So it's cool to see that you've that was where you started. Yeah. And now, where is Felicia? What do you do yeah. now? So what's really interesting is the one pleasure I always got out of marketing and PR was all the cause marketing, and it was the ability to, I've worked with everything, I've worked with Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS, and getting money for them from Target as, as, as the Target um, marketing representative. I've been able to work with DIFA, which I don't know if DIFA exists, or GMHC during the AIDS epidemic, working with Barneys. And I saw the power of cause marketing and corporate dollars in the not-for-profit world, when it was aligned, when their brand values were aligned, when, when, their, when their, their sense of... I don't, I don't want to say social justice because that's a whole other thing, but when their sense of what the quote-unquote right thing, thing to, to do. do was, right? And when it was genuine. It wasn't just, you know, oh, here's a population that's not shopping with us. Let's throw some money against that population. Um, or here's a population that really likes us. Let's just keep throwing money at them so they buy more. So it, it wasn't really that. It started for me, we were losing people at Barney's weekly, and people just would stop coming to work. And then it would be another funeral. And, you know, so we were participating in our community. And I, when I saw the power of that, there was kind of no going back. Um, and so, you know, what I'm doing today is I'm still at 52 years old trying to make the transition from for-profit to not-for-profit. <laughs> it's been a long, long road. Um, so, you know, it's very, very difficult to wrap your head around how much less you make at a mid-sized not-for-profit. If you go to a very large not-for-profit, you can make a very good salary. Live that um, life. Yeah. And I think you can also make a very good salary at some arts not-for-profits because they're driving paid revenue. 
I just, because of my family and my responsibility to my husband and kids, I just never was in a position where I could readjust the salary expectations you in my live. career. Yeah. So after school, once I was settled at work um, and had a place to live and an income, I started volunteering. Um, I, I always felt like I needed to figure out how to make a connection in the community. You were a do-ditter. Yeah, I think so. I also had a lot of spare time. And what's this thing called spare time? It doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. It's just like, ooh. Yeah. It, today, I wouldn't have had that time. I would have been on um, Tinder. Or I would have been on Tinder. You were on Tinder? No, I wasn't, but I would have been. Oh. I mean, why not? Well, because it's scary. Yeah, It's so scary. I think it's fun from where I sit, but I can imagine. No, it's not a good place to be. It's yeah. a very, you, you go down the rabbit hole so quickly, and you're just like, yeah. what? We can talk about Gary Steingart's book about love in the digital age, but we'll move on. We'll, we'll, yeah, that. That, we'll have I, a book group another no, time. No, God. Love in the digital age, just, it doesn't work. Yeah. It just, it's, you. I'm scared for my girls. Well, they'll be, they're in college and high school, high school now, right? Yeah. By the time they get out, there'll be new toys to play with. Okay. So you will, you'll be fine. They but, can like, hologram boys of their own creation. Exactly. Into their rooms. They'll make the yeah. perfect dude who's like, you know, all of the best attributes <laughs> like in their dad. Of, well, of yeah. course. And you've been married a long time. So, yeah. like, you're like one of the, you guys are the rare exception of like normal people. We have a lot of normal people friends. And we have a lot of divorce friends who are normal too. <laughs> Um, but the point is, I I actually started volunteering because it literally I had didn't you have time anything. to do it. Yeah, actually, so, I mean that's the thing I'm saying. Like, like people just don't have the time to do this stuff. Yeah. Like oh, I'm going this mountain quest to like serve kids in like the Himalayas, and you're like, okay, this is some BS. I didn't have the money to do that kind like, of stuff. Like, that's just you, I, I couldn't get no on a plane. One, no one can do I that. couldn't afford to join the Peace Corps. I couldn't do those. Well, that's the thing. It's those are about. rich people volunteering. Yeah. Well, I, I call, I call Oops, that, sorry, sorry to any. No, I don't mean to no, be offensive. No, it's, yes, you can totally be offensive. Oh, That's sorry. the whole point. No, you're supposed to be. Like I call them fake ass um, um, volunteering because it's like, yeah, I want to take a year off and go backpack around the you know, South America and like teach kids how to read. I'd love to do that, but if I took off a year for work, yeah. I would have no home. And what did it teach illegal immigrants in the East Village how to read? <laughs> That was a more pressing need at this point, and you could actually make a positive yeah. difference to someone who's literally staying next to you. Yeah, well, my dad's an immigration attorney, so I, you know, and I learned to speak Spanish. And my dad's, you know, I used to work in my dad's office. He spoke Spanish. It, come on, I got to tell you, it was kind of easy. I, I went to Grace Church in the village, joined the Go Project, started tutoring, loved it. Um, worked for New York Cares, loved it. GMHC, blah blah blah. Just kept doing it, um, and realized that um, I wanted to eventually work in that area. I did eventually get a job in not-for-profit. I was the head of, um, it's an odd title, but marketing and business development for the 92nd Street Y, the most amazing organization ever. Um, And I humbly realized that you have to understand the world of not-for-profit. It's arrogant to think that you can come from the business world, the for-profit world, and you're going to teach the not-for-profit something. It's There are a lot of things that each business model can borrow, and I think there is a hybrid now more than ever before. There are even hybrid um, legal status and tax statuses, but... Technology also probably normalizes a lot of that. Technology does level the playing field, and that's interesting, and we can talk about that. Um, but I think that... Selling a product um, with sh- you know through shared values is one thing. Um, getting people to give away something for nothing for those shared values is something Hold else. Up. And um, I also learned that 
that there are special skills and tools that really need to really you need the experience. You can't. You can go to school and learn these things, but then you need to apply them. We need to work in the real world. I always find like that people who like have never done a thing in their life. I learn it for nonprofit. I'm like, well, do you know how to do a budget? It's do insulting. You, yeah. It's, it's like these are people whose job it is to really make a difference, and they're not coming at it because it's like, oh, their passion project this week. It's like they know this is going to make a difference. Yeah. And they've worked at it, and, and working at that means that like they may have worked elsewhere first, and they've made to get lifestyle some skills, choices, and they, and they can now to comfortably do this with fire and with passion. And I always find it because, like, you know, my good friend is also in the nonprofit world. Yeah, we, and is that the Israeli? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's crazy because she just moved to Chicago and she's now at her first tech startup after spending her entire career yeah. in nonprofits. And the learning curve and the culture change is shell-shocking right, it's both her. ways. It's both ways. Because she's like, how do you people, like, how do you waste so much money on coffee when we're, like, doing our donations to, like, help kids in Ethiopia learn how to, learn how to read? Yeah. It's, the disconnect is so vast. I also think the cultures are very different. I mean, fast forward to that union conversation we had. Uh, when I worked at the 92nd Street Y, I think the most difficult thing for me, more than anything else, was that my entire staff, other than maybe four managers, senior managers, were union. And I had 33 people in my department, and I was really naive as to what it meant to manage 33 or whatever, 30, no, actually 29 union employees. Not that one is better or one is worse. Because it's I actually just different. See, it's just a very different way of, of managing. It's just, there is, there is a constant sense of, a constant sense that on the part of the employees of not wanting to be exploited. And so in the for-profit world in an ad agency, people would think nothing of asking you to go get dinner and come back to work at nine. We're working all night. Exactly. Or we're working all weekend. Or I'm sorry, you have an 18 month at home. Uh, the pitch is on Tuesday. That's your asking your desk. Unbelievable, right? That's the culture I grew up in. So um, it, it, w- it was difficult from that point of view. The other point of view is, and this is where we get into the meat of, of, of the conversation, is in the not-for-profit world, development rules. In the for-profit world, marketing rules. Now, let me just say, I also believe that operations rules and systems rules, but what I'm saying is in this whole marketing versus development, the product rules. So I'm not, I'm just saying that the fancy pants in a for in a for profit organization, sales and marketing, right? They're exactly. on the front lines. They're making people the money. The cash One money. hopes they have a great product to sell, right? So you're kind of like the shiny toys, the superstars. You're doing like the fun, creative stuff. You're you're crunching the numbers. You're you know you're responsible for the big P and L, right? And and also you know you're just as responsible when the numbers are bad as as they are when the numbers are good. You're but, only as good as a last no pitch. nobody's dying. Nobody's not getting food. You're not literally, <laughs> you're not literally clearing no, cancer. Nobody's home is going to get washed away by a flood. Um, you know, and again, I also think it's important to remember how many different types of not-for-profits there are, right? There's social service. There's education. There are NGOs. Uh, there's arts organizations. I mean... The list goes on. It just goes on. I think the reason I was able to make a transition was, A, I had been on boards for like a decade before I went. So I understood 
development and board relations and fundraising, I thought. <laughs> um, but I think also because arts not-for-profits function a little bit more like regular for-profit businesses because generally they're driving revenue. So 92nd Street Y, when I work there, I think at least, I want to say at least 40% of the revenue at that time, which was quite a while ago, was earned revenue. Wow. And the rest was individual. Before we all start talking about paid, own, and earn. Yeah. So, you know, earned revenue versus contributed revenue, right? So most organizations in like the social services, they're not making any money. It's all contributed. There's government grants. There's individual giving. It's really a hustle to get your money. It's hard. And not only is it hard to get it, you got to jump through hoops to get it. You got to jump through hoops to keep it. You're generally not getting it in perpetuity. You're getting it for like two to three year. Keep it it. You know, and um, and then you have to sometimes create new products to get it or new services to get it. And right, that big old grant. And then you have to do the reports and the follow-up and wow, 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 wow. The respect is insane. Now, is there a lot of ritualistic waste and a lot of nonsense there? Yeah, but that's another, that's that's another, another story. So then you get to the earned revenue. So one of the things that I think is, is really exciting and so do a lot of people in the world today is that wouldn't it be great if some of these not-for-profits could find out what they do and do well and turn it into at least one earned revenue stream just to keep them sustainable? So like at God's Again. Love, just one little earned revenue stream and see where that goes. So when I worked with God's Love We Deliver, I worked with them for maybe 15 years. I was on the development committee um, and we talked about, should we do another fundraiser? You know, And again, they've come a long way All since right. then. A lot of that is from very generous donors, and they're just a very together organization. Um, But one of the things we thought about is, what do we do at God's Love We Deliver that we do better than anyone? And that was, we know how to feed sick people. Other organizations know how to feed people. We know how to feed sick people. That's very specific. Well, it's a very, I mean, it's it's also about the fact you are specialized in something. And I think oftentimes the stigma around nonprofits is that it's just giving money away. Like, I don't care how you do it. You're right. And I think that's where the level of like nuance and curation comes in with people like you who like have such a broad, vast experience that you're able to look at this problem as not just, this is not a money problem. It's also a stylistic it's, and it's a functional and it's an operational the product kind of, and uh, yes um, yeah. situation, and then be able to use those skills effectively to actually be good about it. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And so what they finally came to the conclusion of now there's a whole network of of organizations in every city that feed uh, sick people. Um, it's it's an incredible organ. Uh, um, it's not really an organization, but they're affiliated. Um, there's Project I think there's Project Open Hand in San Francisco. Um, Angel, Project Angel Food, I think, in Los Angeles. I don't remember all the names because um, it was quite a while ago. But one of the things that they, you know, that they were thinking about at the time, and I think they origin- they eventually did it, was they were thinking about doing catering and brownies, and then we're like, well, why don't we package our knowledge and our expertise and kind of do consulting or publish books? And so I think eventually that's what they did. But if you look at the the strategic decision. It would have been so much money invested in coming up with a shelf-stable brownie and then doing marketing and competing with all the other brownies out there. What they did was far less glamorous and exciting and like far profitable. less consumer-friendly, but far more profitable and right in the sweet spot of their skill set. And the people who would be paid to find them. Right. 
And that's the thing. It's like right. when you have a nonprofit, it's effective. You are talking to people with things that they can relate to, exactly. whether it be products, services, or the mission. Right, and they recognize the need and the urgency. One of the things that happened at an organization like God's Love We Deliver is people with AIDS started living healthier, longer lives due to a cocktail and medications. It, it, it stopped becoming a, a problem that was incredibly urgent. Um, the disease changed, the disease life, life cycle changed, and then all the, a lot of the AIDS funding dried up. So they started feeding people with Parkinson's, people with cancer, and think about it. You know, think about the design, engineering, innovation, someone with Parkinson's. You can't give them a big bowl of peas. Maybe right. you don't give them soup. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, that's, that's like the, the level, the level of level, nuance. Right? That's but it comes level. from someone who's a marketer. Who's like, well, well actually, or, or just you just understand from a functional side of the universe, right? It's funny that you think it comes from marketing because you know why? That's how you think of marketing. You think of marketing as people who look at the marketplace and help influence needs. This had nothing to do with marketing. This is probably all strategy. And that's another humbling thing. When I went in, I thought marketers had all the answers. Right. Um, people in the not-for-profit world are insanely overeducated. <laughs> I have They're never met. A bunch of people, a friend of mine went to the Robin Hood Foundation to do some work after a very successful career, and he was so intimidated by just the level of intensity and the number of advanced degrees that these people had. So that didn't come out of marketing. That came more out of strategic thinking. But that brings me to what you're saying. I think that the word marketing really doesn't is not, it's almost not the right term to use for a not-for-profit. Communications is, mm-hmm. right? Not necessarily marketing, because marketing is, it's a little bit more about revenue. The only place I really think marketing is important is in, like I said, um, right now, is in arts organizations that are literally driving revenue, Got right? It. Through oh. selling tickets, right? Oh. I think that it's communications. Marketing is a sub-function of- Communications, Development. Really? All marketing and, and communications are in a not-for-profit. See, I'm learning. Development. Yeah, I mean, I'm still learning. This is, and this is my opinion, but my sense is that the people getting the money are the most important people, other than <laughs> that are not actually serving the cause, right? The people out there getting the money, they're helping to shape how the data is collected. They are, you know, they have to think six months, six years out to get these grants. These are, these, this is the data we need to collect, right? To get these grants, these are the people we need to know. So they are an incredibly talented group of people. And I think um, if they have great marketing partners, great communications partners, that partnership is amazing. Sometimes you'll see marketing reporting into development. Um, sometimes you'll see them coexisting, like, Marketing is like a creative services department. It's very different in all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think the exciting thing is it's all changing. Not-for-profits have always been amazing storytellers, always. And they were always great at collecting data because you can't get money if you can't prove that you're- Where does your dollar actually go? But here's, and you said it earlier, here's where it all gets exciting. Um, technology. Technology. So how is technology resetting this universe? Wow, so many ways. Imagine storytelling with with social. So imagine storytelling with these incredible, compelling little pieces of video. You don't have to hire a big film crew now and do it. And then where do you show the video? You show it at the gala. Where do you show the video? You pitch WNET or WGBH and you see if they'll... 
Now, There's one more Sarah McLaughlin singing in the background what, with like the little with the little puppies being killed. <laughs> Actually, they're out there, but there's more of them. My point is, whatever your style is, whether it's Sarah McLaughlin and the puppies, or whether you're charity water and you want to show drilling of a well that you can, it doesn't really matter. It's that visual storytelling is now available to not-for-profits in a way, or nonprofits in a way it hasn't been before. You want to raise money for the most exquisite ballet performance ever? Show me a few seconds of that performance. I mean, the power of the visual is incredible. And now I can put it on my own website. It's incredible. You're not waiting for press. It's like, I think- Yes, I think, you don't have to wait for third party anymore. Yeah, I think it's, it, it's, the, it's the fact that like now with technology, it's one instantaneous, but also your reach is massive immediately. It doesn't require anything well, else. Well, here's the other thing. Your reach, your reach is perfectly targeted. So let's talk about this. A lot of times, it's not how many people you reach in the nonprofit. It's about reaching the people who give a shit about what you're doing and what you care about, right? So I work with WaterAid. Um, I volunteer with WaterAid America. WaterAid is a UK organization that um, has opened the North American branch. In the UK, they're really focused a lot on Africa. In the US, they're focusing on Nicaragua and El Salvador. So what's most important to them in having a marketing partner is who in the United States cares about bathroom sanitation in Nicaragua? Who in the United States cares about children and diarrhea in El Salvador. I mean, you know, you don't, Not the sexiest thing. Right. And you don't just put up a video to everyone and people start giving. So, so it's the storytelling and the segmenting. And that's where technology helps. Technology helps in terms of the channels of getting it out there. And it also helps you with all the data science tools out there to find that person who gives that that person. Who gives a shit? Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, it's so exciting. Yeah, literally. I love that. Actually, we did a campaign, give a shit. That was our campaign. Um, it, it was amazing. We, they actually put toilets out in the park, but the, again, another conversation. Um, cause there's a national toilet day. Actually, there's an international. When toilet day. is it? Um, I'll find out for you and, and we'll for, put your, it in the show for notes. your listeners. We'll put it in the show notes. Yes. So, um, so these two organizations are amazing. Um, you know, so that to me is where everything's become exciting. The lower, the low cost of, um, of just even what we're doing today to have this conversation right now and to be able to share it to whoever gives a shit. Cause quite frankly, I know you have followers, but I'm a little like, you know, under the radar. That's okay. Not so much, not so much longer. <laughs> but, um, and then the other piece of the technology that's, so anyway, to, to, to put this out there, the other piece is the collecting of data. And the, and the slicing and the dicing and then the visualizing of the data. I mean, what we can do now with data innovation, with, with uh, data graphics, I mean. It's amazing. Game changer. You used to have to use so many words to simply say, it's sort of like if you give a girl a cookie. If you, if you keep a girl in school past 12, here's, here's and I think um, the, uh, maybe the UN Foundation or the World Food Organization did this whole cute video. You must have seen it, Girl Power. If you give a girl a cookie, or no, excuse me, it wasn't a cookie. If you keep a girl in school, here's what happens. Right. She gets pregnant later. She can better, better take care of her family. Um, you know, uh, eventually the entire community benefits from it. I wish I could remember the entire conversation. But um, yeah, so the point is, because they could put that video up, they were able to, to really stir some, some real attention. Um, the other thing is, like I said, data collection, so it's CRM. So this CRM um, 
does wonders for knowing who your donors are, understanding what matters to them, slicing and dicing the lists and getting out very targeted messages. Um, so I think that the, the, there's so many new CRM platforms out there for not-for-profits that are industry-specific. You know, I was at the Dreamforce conference in San Francisco, and it, it's actually kind of a crazy story, but... Um, Two years ago, I went to, my first time going to Dreamforce. Um, one of my dearest friends works for a, a well-known nonprofit in Chicago. I hadn't seen him in like two years. And I'm watching Hillary Clinton give the keynote at this, at Dreamforce. And I tweet out, and it's just connected to my Instagram and Facebook, that I'm there. Turns out he also happens to be there. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? And he goes, well, my nonprofit uses Salesforce. It's what we use for our CRM. And it blew my mind that here was this nonprofit. It's a school organization in Chicago. They um, help with a ton of different programs. But they were getting all Salesforce enabled and certified yeah. so that they could essentially track the donations better, mm -hmm. really track the progress of their kids better, but also track that conversation about who's done, who's done any, who do they have to go back to, who do they have to keep yeah. doing back to over and over again. So... It's Salesforce has a not-for-profit um, module that's amazing. I'll tell you, I am on the board of two not-for-profits, the Brooklyn Youth Chorus and the Children's Museum of the Arts in the in the down in like the West West Soho. And um, we, a, a team of us, did all their rebranding. And you know, once the rebranding was done, we were like, well, now we have to work on CRM. It's not sexy, but it's what we need. Neither of these, each of these organizations had a CRM for the museum and then a separate sort of CRM that was like tapestry that was just for donors. And so their patrons or their, their everyday users were not in the same database as their, as the people supporting them. And this is not uncommon in the arts world. Um, and I think now that's all changing. Now we're going out for grant money and money specifically to build these these um, integrated CRM systems like Salesforce. And there are incredible for-profit companies, again, technology companies, that are solving the problems of not-for-profits and doing a really great job and, and doing very well. So it's a really exciting amalgamation of, of for-profit and not-for-profits coming together for purpose, for you know, mission and purpose. And I think, especially with millennials, I think all business will slowly move that way. You think about B Corps and conscious capitalism, and it's not a bunch of hooey. <laughs> I've never actually used that word. Uh, I, I mean, do you, I mean, I, my problem I've seen a lot with a lot of nonprofits is that, like, it almost is standoffish in the way that they sometimes deal with folks. Where, like, if you're not giving X amount, they want to hear from you. Or if you, can, you can't give your time, they only, only care about is you giving them money. They don't want your time. And I think as this sort of, it sounds like what technology, which democratizes everything, is also democratizing the ability for you to actually Give engage. your time, yeah. engage in ways that you couldn't before. Like you can share a video, like you know, charity work. Yeah, exactly. Right? Now you don't. If you can't go to Africa and help build that well, or write that check for ten thousand dollars, you can tell everyone about you it. You can tell everyone in your network of your thousand friends, and tell them to do that. Exactly. Or it's my birthday. Exactly. Don't send me a happy birthday on Facebook. Give me a dollar. Exactly. And there are all kinds of apps and, and things being developed for this. It's so exciting. I mean, the thing about helping is most not-for-profits really can't take volunteer work or even pro bono Didn't work. Didn't realize that. For, oh. Well, for oh. a variety of reasons. Sometimes they don't have the capacity to manage you. There's liabilities. Um, 
you, you may not, they may not think you're good enough. I mean, and they don't want to be in a position to, I mean, there's a million reasons. And so again, there's that naivete that if I just show up and offer, they want me, you know, these are not, these are people who really care about what they're doing and they want, you know, it's serious business. You know, it's not for faint of art. I love when you use your accent. <laughs> so I do think what's important to understand is yes, now we can all participate in some way. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the pendulum swings really far in both directions. There is a lot of bullshit going on. There's a lot of lip service, but it'll level out. I think people have to learn and respect one another. I'm I'm noticing that a lot of the masters in not-for-profit management are kind of going away and they're morphing into sort of, I kind of feel like you should, there should be an MBA for not-for-profit as opposed to a master's in nonprofit management. I think it should be a track that you yeah, take. Because, it, because it's, you need a bunch of skills. I don't think management's one thing, yeah. but like you need these sales yeah. and marketing skills. You need these technology skills. Absolutely. You need these communication skills. You need to understand staffing. You need to understand organizational behavior. You need Now, there are different legal and financial um, mechanisms that you need, but, but you could take it on a track. You know, social venture, not for profit. So I think eventually... That will be the sign that it's really folding in to understanding that not-for-profits have to adhere to the best business principle, best practice, and and for-profits should start to adhere to the best practices of not-for-profits. And it shouldn't be so, it shouldn't be so different. Who do you think is doing it well? Wow, there's a lot of people doing it well. I, I think Charity Water taps taps the latest in technology well. I'm not as familiar with their operations and how they use the money. I'm, I know a little bit about it, um, but I think they're, they've really seized on the communications piece. I think BAM in the art space just blows my mind. Absolutely blows my mind. Um, they have the best shows. And they have the best, they have amazing marketing. They have amazing graphics and amazing sense of their brand. You know, I'm a brand, a brand strategist. Yeah, it's like the brand of self. Like, you know they it's a brand get, event. And you're you like, Ooh, see bam. something from BAM and you know it's BAM. Like, if I can get tickets, I'm going. I think, you know, I don't want to disparage others, but I think of all the New York arts organizations, they're really good. So what's the future hold for all this? Um, I don't know, but it's very exciting. And, and you know what? It's going to move fast. Because everything these days moves really quickly. Hella fast. It used to take a really long time when you saw a change coming on the horizon, but I think it's so exciting. So I'll, I'll talk to you about um, B Corps. Do you know about B Corps? A little bit, but it's a little funny for okay, me. Okay, so B Corp is literally a legal status of a business, you know, LLC, C Corp, B Corp. It's not in every state, I think, right now. There, um, I'm pretty sure that there's something called B Labs, which is a consulting group that's evangelizing and advocating to um, make B Corps um, uh, exist in every state. Um, But basically, these are corporations like Patagonia, like Uncommon Goods, um, that are just trying to adhere to the highest standards of sustainability and positive impact on the world around them. Um, And uh, I think that the more you see for-profits doing that and engaging and partnering with not-for-profits, um, like I said, the more you'll see the line blur. And I think that that's where it's going. Awesome. Boom. Boom. Thank you so much, Felicia. I mean, you've just got 
knowledge for days, and I love hearing you talk about the thing that you're so passionate and so good at. Um, We'll put all the awesome information that um, Felicia's been talking about in the show notes. Be sure to check it out. Follow Felicia at Brooklyn View on Twitter, and we'll see you next time at The Reset. Thanks so much. Bye. The Reset Podcast is sponsored by Bose. With my new Bose QC35 headphones, nothing gets between me and my music. The noise canceling is world class. They're completely Bluetooth, so there's no wires. The sound is amazing. My producer and I love these so much that we use them to record every single show. For more information about Bose QC35 headphones and other Bose products, check out Bose.com. Thank you.